complex composition and syntax of the majority of cuneiform lists show they were intended for the use of advanced students in the scribal school or as reference works to be consulted by scholars. Other areas of advanced training and study included the vocabulary of priestly and administrative offices, the preparation of stele, and the copying of law codes and trial proceedings. Mathematics constituted the third area of instruction in the scribal curriculum. Mathematical exercise texts, preserved from the Old Akkadian, Old Babylonian, and Seleucid periods, belong to one of three types, table texts dealing with multiplication, reciprocals, squares, and square roots, coefficient lists presenting fixed values for various items, and problem texts covering matters such as algebra, geometry, and surveying. Texts containing practical problems prepared scribes for a variety of administrative positions. Individuals who would enter temple service received training in music, the fourth curricular area. Music instruction included mastery of Sumerian technical terms, roughly equivalent to our terms antiphon, recital, and finale. Students in the scribal school mastered the performance of several instruments. They also learned the different names of various songs and the versification of lyrics. This training was essential preparation for the chief singer of lamentations and dirges in the temple. Ordinary performers in the cult, however, probably did not read or write. Some word lists provided Akkadian equivalents to Sumerian grammatical, verbal or nominal, forms. Once the student mastered the fundamentals of language and a basic vocabulary, he proceeded to advanced and specialized study in a variety of disciplines. Pedagogic practices in the old Babylonian school were responsible for the preservation of Sumerian literature. Copying literary texts provided instruction in Sumerian composition and syntax for more advanced students. Among the literary texts thus preserved were royal hymns, proverb collections, mythological texts, and dialogues between hypothetical rival parties, such as the pickaxe and the plow, in which each presented evidence to support its claim to superiority or greater worth. The student achieved competence in epistolary and contractual style and structure by copying practice letters and model contracts. He mastered the terminology of a discipline by copying lists of technical vocabulary. The practice of grouping words according to subject. Several Sumerian texts deal with students' experiences in school. While the surviving texts themselves date from the late Babylonian period, they are believed to reflect conditions during old Babylonian times, the heyday of the scribal academy. The teacher, designated as Umanu, expert, professor, presided over the school, the students, and the curriculum. The advanced student, called Big Brother, served as his assistant. The son of the tablet house occupied the lowest rung in the student hierarchy. The primary task of the school day was the preparation, writing, and reading of tablets. Students partook of a midday meal brought from home. The teacher meted out corporal punishment for tardiness and lack of decorum. The teacher held power over the student's career, for he could ensure, or at least influence, the student's placement in a desirable position. After the old Babylonian period, the academy as an institution died out. The heretofore uniform school curriculum became less clearly defined and less widespread in its application. Although texts describing the educational process ceased to be produced, students continued to receive formal education from masters of the scribal arts. Scholars instructed pupils in their homes or in smaller schools. Some of these were located in proximity to the place in which scribes fulfilled their professional duties, for example, the private study of a master scribe associated with the temple complex at Hellenistic Uruk. Evidence of pedagogic activity is available in the continued production of copying exercises and lists and indirectly from notices of scribal activities contained in the texts and in colophons appended to texts. 
It was customary for scribes to append to the ends of tablets colophons that included some or all of the following notations, catch line, which gave the opening line of the next tablet in the series, name and number of a tablet in a series, number of lines on the tablet, source of the copy, names of the owner or scribe who produced the copy, reason for writing the tablet, curse or blessing, date, and disposition of the copy. The colophon might also contain the name of the owner of the tablet, that of the tablet scribe, or both names. Prosopographic notices in colophons from texts, particularly of the Hellenistic period, afford a unique glimpse at the transmission of knowledge and the development of personal libraries and study collections. The statements of purpose in the colophon contain phrases related to the pedagogic process. The phrases for reading, for instruction, for dictation, or for his own study indicate. The Akkadian and Sumerian terms for scribe, tupseru and dub, sar, meant tablet writer. Other scribal titles reflected either the material on which a scribe wrote, or some aspect of his duties, for example, wood tablet scribes known from the Hittite Empire, and leather or papyrus scribes. A sample of translated Sumerian and Akkadian scribal titles offers some indication of the broad range of responsibilities borne by cuneiform scribes. Not all titles were in use throughout the entire period of cuneiform writing, and the specific duties associated with each title varied through time. Scribes could hold titles indicating additional non-scribal responsibilities. For example, at Hellenistic Uruk some scribes held as many as three titles, including that of Kalu, Lamentation Priest. Furthermore, scribal titles indicate that a scribe could hold several scribal positions, either concurrently or consecutively. Cuneiform scribes were involved in every facet of life where the script was employed. Distribution of scribes across various specialties is estimated as follows. 70% administrative, 20% private, and 10% scientific and quasi-scientific activities. Individuals titled Seperu, an Aramaic loanword often rendered translator scribe, made and received payments on behalf of their principals. Additionally, these individuals, competent in both Akkadian cuneiform and Aramaic, worked outside the firm as low-level administrators in private real estate firms. In contracts, the scribes served either as a notary or a witness. Scribes of Hellenistic contracts typically recorded transactions to which they were not witnesses. But individuals known and designated by title as scribes appear in witness lists of other contracts, indicating that a scribe, just as any member of the social elite, could witness contractual agreements. However, seal impressions on old Babylonian tablets indicate that scribes in that period could serve simultaneously as notaries and witnesses. As private individuals, scribes recorded business transactions, prepared contracts, served as notaries, and functioned as witnesses both to transactions they recorded and to those in which they had an interest. While scribes received compensation for their work, the great fortunes some scribes amassed derived from a variety of activities, including the sale and rental of real estate, accumulation, and trading of shares held in temple offerings, and loans of silver. As private individuals, scribes engaged in activities appropriate to any member of their social strata. Tablets from the old Assyrian trading colony at Kanesh, modern Kaltit, demonstrate that some merchants were literate, having received training sufficient to enable them to send letters and maintain business records. However, most merchants hired scribes to do this work for them. Scribes were particularly in evidence as businessmen in entrepreneurial firms of the late first millennium. Records from the House of Ejibai, a Neo-Babylonian business firm, provide information about the activities of individual scribes as businessmen. Of these, the most renowned was Idimarduk Balatu, son of a man who was a scribe and businessman. Although Idimarduk Balatu wrote many legal documents, 
mercantile activity was his primary concern. In his lifetime he amassed a fortune that included more than 100 slaves and 16 houses in Babylon and Borsippa. His resources enabled him to provide his sister and daughters with substantial dowries. Scribes was among the members of the community who served as agents for business activities of the Achaemenid firm of Marashu. Like other landholders with whom the Marashu firm did business, scribes were grouped into special associations, in which a foreman allocated shares in the fiefdom to the association members. One such association was of the scribes of the army-slash-people. The foramen of this group were, among other things, responsible for ensuring payment of rent from their own association's lands to the Marashu firm, and for issuing written authorization. Palace scribes recorded the activities of kings, and the affairs of kingdoms in ancient Mesopotamia. Scribes served a variety of administrative functions, including arrangement and storage of texts for future retrieval from palace archives and libraries, collection of taxes and supervision of workers, and supervision of public buildings such as granaries. As secretaries to kings, scribes exercised control over communications intended for royalty. Some seal inscriptions of old Babylonian scribes designated an individual scribe as servant of a particular king. Particularly in the first millennium, scribes in their capacities as scholars achieved the greatest proximity to and influence over matters at court. Among the areas of scholarly specialization were heresbacy, astrology, exorcism, medicine, and performance of hymns to appease angered gods. The tablets of Nabuzukup Kenu, a scribe in the palace of the Neo-Assyrian king Sargon, and Sennacherib, inform us of the activities of a scholar in the palace. The colophons appended to many of the tablets he copied indicate that he traveled to other cities to consult original texts in order to prepare copies for the library at Nimrud, Kalku. The colophons to six texts written by Nabuzukup Kenan note that the texts were copied for his reading. This attests to his continuing personal study, in addition to the execution of professional obligations. Besides being a copyist, Nabuzukup Kenu authored a mathematical text, known as Idot Nangis Hernkia. A tablet preserving an extract of this series contains a chart, the three columns of which established equivalences among divine attributes, numerals, and the deity's names. The colophons to these tablets were a vehicle by which the scribes could assert, in a self-perpetuating way, that learning was only for those initiated into its secrets. Warnings to this effect might read, A secret of the scholar, the uninitiated shall not see. However, the ease with which many of the putative scribal secrets can be deciphered mitigates the force of this claim. As Mesopotamian kings turned their political ambitions to empires, the need for translators arose. Scribes, already trained in the spoken and written forms of two languages, were the natural choice to assume this task. However, there is little indication of how scribes achieved proficiency in additional languages. At the time of the Akkadian Empire, references to translators of the languages of Maluk Ka and Kutha appear. The Euro III king Shulji boasted that in his palace he alone knew how to speak Elamite and Amorite. The Mari tablets mention the presence of translators in trading caravans. In the Middle Babylonian period translators were needed to deal with the Mitannian army. International activity between Egypt, Mesopotamia, and the Hittite empires in the middle and late second millennium necessitated translators from cuneiform into Egyptian. Texts from the Egyptian city of Amarna, Akita 10, refer to cuneiform scribes learning Egyptian as well. The appearance of the title head of the translators indicates that there was an organized cadre of these professionals. Translators, in great demand throughout the first millennium, achieved special prominence during the Achaemenid period. When the kings of the Achaemenid Empire adopted Aramaic as their official language, 
it became necessary to prepare copies of royal promulgations in the native languages of the subject populations. Following the Neo-Assyrian period, the Akkadian term Targamanu, translator, is replaced by Seperu, parchment scribe. Scribes associated with the temple were not officiants in the temple cult. They functioned largely in administrative and bureaucratic roles. They received incoming staples for the temple, including commodities such as grain, fish, wool, and silver. They traveled to various cities to fulfill official duties, such as the purchase of grain for the temple complex. Temple scribes aided temple archivists by classifying records, indicating categories under which tablets were to be stored. They also helped to prepare tablets as votive offerings to the gods. One area of scribal activity that reflects the interconnection between temple and palace activities is the composition of ephemerides, late first millennium texts on which scribes kept track of and recorded astronomical data. In order to determine the propitiousness of an action at any given time, the king ordered the observation of a variety of natural and celestial phenomena. Priests interpreted the signs as beneficent or malevolent. Archive staff members prepared reports and disseminated them to interested parties. Records of these observations and the ensuing actions taken provided comprehensive catalogues of everything that transpired in the court and empire. Preparation of these reports called upon the expertise of many specialists, including priests, astronomers, archivists, and scribes. Most scribes wrote mundane business documents and left little indication of their personalities, backgrounds, or intellectual interests. A few scribes, however, stand out for achievements that earn them the title of scholar. Cuneiform scholars were individuals who, having mastered the basics of the scribal curriculum, received advanced training in one or more specialized fields. Scholars amassed collections of tablets for personal, family, or royal libraries. Facility in a particular genre or discipline led some to author or edit unique compositions, which may then have been copied by generations of scribes. In general, anonymity characterized cuneiform literature. However, the few named authors of literary texts left remarkably rich insights into the nature of their involvement with their work. Kapti Alani Marduk, author of the era epic, claimed to have completely and accurately copied the poem that had been divinely transmitted to him through a dream. Saggil Kinnam Ubib, author of the Babylonian Theodicy, allowed his sense of whimsy and innovation to creep into his famous composition. When the syllabic signs beginning each line of each successive stanza of this acrostic poem are arranged sequentially, they read, I, Saggil Kinnam Ubib, the incantation priest, am a durant of the god and the king. Sin Lika Nini, the legendary editor of a recension of the Epic of Gilgamesh, was said to have lived around 1300. Hundreds of years later, a few scholars regarded him as a putative ancestor. Many families of scholars associated themselves, through patronymics recorded in colophons, with a prestigious ancestor. At Hellenistic Uruk, most scribes claimed descent from either Sinlika Nini, Ikerzakir, Akatu, or Kuri. Scribes claiming descent from Sinlik Anini concentrated their efforts on the copying of scholarly and scientific texts. Scribes in both the Sinlik Anini and Iker Zakir clans developed personal tablet collections once they retired from actively writing tablets. Sumero-Akkadian bilingual hymns from Babylon were largely composed by scribes claiming descent from the ancestor Nana Yutu. The family tree reconstructed for the scribes of this genre of texts includes four generations. In almost all cases the writer of a particular tablet was the son of the individual who owned it. The fathers of the scribes had themselves frequently been scribes of this genre of texts. From the dates of these texts, it is possible to determine that these scribes assumed scribal duties only after their fathers were no longer writing tablets. The term Amanu, defined as teacher, 
carried the basic meaning of master, one proficient in a particular area of knowledge. In this sense the term was applied to practitioners of various disciplines, including diviners and exorcists, who consulted gods about important events, astronomers, who observed celestial phenomena, astrologers, who interpreted omens portended in the heavens and on earth, and physicians, who tiered to the mental and physical health of the court. The king regularly availed himself of the talents of these specialists, and counted them among his most trusted advisors. The technical literature mastered by these professionals constitutes the body of Mesopotamian science. By the end of the Neo-Assyrian period, the association of the scientific literature with the temples as well as the palace was strong, leading some modern scholars to consider their ancient counterparts priests. However, this conclusion conflicts with the evidence from most periods, as the duties and responsibilities of scholars and priests were clearly differentiated. This specialization is reflected in part by the distinctive titles held by members of particular professions. Only in the Hellenistic period, when the use of cuneiform was limited to a few traditionalists in the major cities of Mesopotamia, did an individual hold multiple titles once reserved for separate offices. Astronomers and astrologers constituted the largest group of scholars. By 700 BC, astronomers could predict eclipses and planetary phases and had discovered the periodicity of various astronomical phenomena. Records show that some physicians diagnosed conditions based on the appearance of a variety of symptoms. An extensive corpus of letters written by scholars to the king during the Neo-Assyrian period documents communication between these two parties. Scholars were not merely copyists of earlier traditions. They pursued earlier tablets of particular omen series and took the information they deemed necessary or appropriate for the particular occasion and edited it into a new composition. Increasingly, scholars found ways to leave their personal imprint on texts. In the first millennium, scholars began to engage in whimsical and erudite orthographies. Numerals sometimes substituted for syllabic or logographic signs in normal orthographies of some omen texts and commentaries. We encounter a comparable practice in modern times when, for example, the homophony of the numeral 4 and the preposition 4 allows us to write for sale. This curious practice was also tested on some scribal names preserved in colophons. As the numbers in these curious cuneiform orthographies have no intrinsic relationship to the cuneiform signs for which they substitute, we must conclude that the scribes manipulated the system for their enjoyment and intellectual diversion.